Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 86 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending January 26, 2018, the Headed to Minneapolis edition. In this episode, Jay Rosen and I take a look at some of the week's top compliance related stories. They include the government indictment of five KPMG KPMG partners and one former PCAOB professional for tipping off the firm of of upcoming reviews of KPMG audits. We look at uh, Mike Volkoff, who suggested that CCOs need to review their corporate vows to uh, corporations. We take a look at uh, a piece by Dick Casson on uh, Code of Conduct, a review by Sam Rubenfell of how Accenture uses bots to bring its code of conduct to employees. We pair that with an incredibly interesting article by Vince Walden in Fraud Magazine about <clears throat> preventing fraud and enhancing compliance program by using digital twins, AI, technology, all wrapped around innovation. We ask the question of, is your compliance team a part of your pre-acquisition M&A team? As uh, Henry Cutter reported this issue, or at least explored it in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report, we uh, highlight Eric Newcomer and Brad Stone's terrifying story about the fall of Travis Kalanick at Uber, as they reported in Bloomberg. We note Jonathan Marks knocks it out of the park again with uh, his uh, a piece on his blog, Board and Fraud blog, entitled Board of Directors Guide to FCPA Compliance. It's a really fun week. Uh, we're pretty passionate about a lot of these topics, so we take a deep dive and get into it. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, a compliance evangelist, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA. This is episode 86 for the week ending January 26, 2018, the Headed to Minneapolis edition. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my cohort and co-host, Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. What are we going to do with a week without real football? I don't know. I don't know. My my wife asked me that. She says, does that mean that I will see you this weekend? And I said, well, I don't know. Maybe maybe we can start our uh, Oscar research, I was thinking. Oh, yeah, definitely. We should uh, start looking into that. So uh, another big week of ethics and compliance and FCPA. What do you want to start us out with? Well, let's start with the biggest, uh, noting that we're going to circle back to this because the more I read, the more I listen, and the more I think about this, uh, Jay, this, this is the kind of case that not only boggles the mind, but frankly, if you wrote a book about this, people would say, uh, you can't write that in the fiction column or in the fiction section because fiction has to make sense. And it is the indictment of five former KPMG partners and one former public uh, company accounting oversight board professional for the theft of confidential information about audit reviews by the PCAOB of KPMG and the use by KPMG of that information to prepare for audits, then to actually change audits, change work papers, and try to clean up the messes that they created in audits. Um, Lots of folks have written and talked about this. Matt Kelly uh, talked about it early on. 
probably the most in-depth reporting I've seen is, uh, unsurprisingly, Francine McKenna uh, at Market Watch. Um, Matt and I did a podcast on it. Tammy Whitehouse over at uh, Compliance Week has written about it. Uh, I wrote about it. Um, but I will have to say that if there was one person born to write this story, and I told her this, it was Francine McKenna. So I'm sure she'll be all over it, as is uh, Tammy Whitehouse. The uh, the basic facts are, Jay, that um, there were uh, three uh, employees at the Public Counting Oversight Board, uh, uh, David Sweet, Cynthia Holder, and one other. And the Sweet and Holder were hired by um, KPMG with the express condition that they bring this confidential information over to KPMG. Now, the third uh, PCAOB employee was a fellow named, I believe, David Wada. And David uh, had the information but uh, and gave it to uh, KPMG, but they did not uh, hire him, or Jeffrey Wada, rather. So he was not hired, but he was one of the three that gave the confidential information. The people who received this, and this is just the truth is stranger than fiction part, Jay, is there were three national managing partners at KPMG who received the information, or, or we should say alleged to have. Those were David Middendorf, managing na- then national managing partner for audit quality and professional practice, Thomas Whittle, then national partner in charge for inspections, and David Britt, KPMG's head of KPMG's banking and capital market group. Um, not only did they use these to prepare for the uh, audits and to change the work papers, but it turns out that uh, basically uh, Middendorf and the others extorted the two employees who came over from the PCAOB to keep bringing the confidential information over on KPMG's uh, or the PCAOB's audits of KPMG, threatening them. And at one point, uh, Middendorf told Sweet, remember where your paycheck came from. Uh, so lots, lots, lots going on here. Corporate culture, management, fraud, theft of confidential information. Uh, we're going to perhaps unpack it a little bit, but uh, if I sound aghast at this, it's uh, the more, like I said, the more I think about it, uh, the more I am. So uh, I'm sure you are uh, got some thoughts on this as well, but I'm going to really ask you to hold off because uh, otherwise we'll do the whole 30 minutes on this. And we do have a few other things um, that uh, we wanted to talk about. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, a very interesting article that our colleague Mike Volkoff wrote uh, entitled, Cor- uh, CCOs Need to Renew Corporate Vows uh, or Corporations Need to Renew Their Vows to Chief Compliance Officers. What did Mike share with us? Uh, Mike decided to take a real nice look at the relationship that's in the past has existed between the chief compliance officer and the C-suite. And um, one of the things that you like to talk about, and, you know, I've spoke spoken about it before in, in some of my writings, is how do you make ethics and compliance become a bottom line contributor? And how do you separate it from being just a cost center into something that's going to uh, not only add to the bottom line, but something that you can incorporate into the day-to-day business. So Mike thinks that this is a great time for the um, CCO to kind of renew its vows uh, with the company. And specifically when within that is trying to figure out 
and incentivize the folks within the C-suite to the necessary nature of ethics and compliance. And in the past, it's always been looked at as something that happens when you get in trouble. But I think one of the themes that we're starting to hear very early in this year is how the proactive nature of ethics and compliance uh, can lead to better profitability. We've had studies that look at that. And even in the things we're going to talk about today, we have some unique ways to use ethics and compliance and to make them uh, being a competitive advantage for your business. So uh, great, great uh, thought piece from Mike, and it's going to be included in the show notes as always. Jay, next up, we had uh, an article by uh, Dick Casson, and and I will have to tell you that uh, when Dick writes from the heart, I find it to be the most uh, empowered and powerful writing he does. And he took a concept that you might not think of as really one from the heart, uh, but it's code of conduct. Most people think of that as a lawyer written by lawyers, for lawyers, thou shalt not kind of document. Um, But he really takes it a little bit different direction and uh, acknowledging that there are rules to be followed, um, that the code of conduct is really a statement by a company's top management about what the company truly believes. And that you, if you take that a step further as an employee, that's what you believe and that's how your company believes and everyone is expecting in the company to behave. And so Dick uses that really as a starting point to ask, is that something that we are measuring up to as employees? Are we measuring up to that as humans? Uh, is there accountability? Are we acting honorably or are we falling, falling, falling short and using the standard of your standard of your company's code of conduct? And I really found it a very powerful way to think of something that, frankly, Jay, I'm not sure a lot of people put stock in. Uh, but if you kind of take Dick's approach, it becomes much more than just a, a paper list of thou shalt nots. But really, uh, as he said, what we believe in, what top management believes in, and therefore what the company believes in. So I made some notes on the article he wrote, and I go from what the company truly believes to what the company stands for to being a promise of how they'll act, and then syncing up with my last uh, piece that we just spoke about, Pfizer's Code of Conduct says, our commitment to doing the right thing, which means complying with both the spirit and the letter of the laws that govern our industry, gives us a competitive advantage. Acting with integrity depends on each of us giving our full commitment. The responsibility lies with all of us. It's mine, it's yours, it's ours. So once again, Dick is articulating that idea of not only because it's the right thing to do, but if you're going to re- if you're going to act that way, it will give you an advantage versus your competition. Uh, next up uh, is an article by Sam Rubenfeld. And perhaps we should have paired this with one we're going to talk about a little bit later um, around technology and compliance or innovation and compliance. But Sam looked at a report or reported rather on how Accenture uses bots to bring its code of conduct to uh, employees. And 
The really interesting thing about this was the tech. I thought the technology angle, but how the the bots uh, act as an algorithm to direct uh, the right topics to employees in the right circumstances. And we're going to take a much more sophisticated look at something along those lines a little bit later. But a uh, great piece by uh, Sam, as always. And it really got me thinking about uh, the next one we're going to talk about and how <clears throat> technology is really leading to uh, really a great amount of innovation sort of going forward. Um, our friend Jonathan Marks continues his, frankly, Jay, stunning run of uh uh, in his first five posts, he's hit five out of the park. And uh, other than your uh, um, uh, Patriots, I'm not sure anybody else bats at this high level on their blog posts. But uh, Jonathan uh, has a post entitled Board of Directors Guide to FCPA Compliance. And he really puts together an action plan from the board perspective on FCPA compliance. And if uh, you want to know how to advise your board or you uh, need to, uh, you're on a board, need to think through it, I would heartily recommend this article to you. Of course, we'll link to it in the show notes, but uh, kudos to Jonathan once again for knocking it out of the park. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. And uh, again, we're, we're talking about um, what the responsibility is for the board of directors and uh, not only the composition of who should be on there, you know, that's something that companies should think about now. Should there be somebody who's in there that, you know, knows things about cybersecurity and people have a greater understanding of the ethics of compliance, but really how to um, infuse this throughout the corporation and even talking about the correct reporting structure. So it's, it's a great piece. And as you said, we'll link to it in the uh, show notes. Um, next thing that we're going to talk about is an article from the Risk Compl Compliance Journal, and it's uh, written by Henry Cutter, and uh, this, it's about a new survey in a um, white paper that came out for Baker and McKenzie, and it's talking about um, how often companies use the compliance function when contemplating a merger or acquisition, and some of the um, just mind-boggling stats are fewer than one in five companies give compliance staff substantive roles in handling major mergers. So that's less than 20%. And then less than 50% um, have unresolved compliance issues when they do acquisitions. And, you know, when I think about situations like this, I think about GE purchasing Allstem and really getting in there and looking at the deficiencies that the ethics compliance program had there and really even changing the amount of uh, their offer because they needed to retrade the deal to have information uh, and resources uh, to take care of the acquisition. And, you know, one of the ones that uh, is kind of textbook is when uh, Mondelez International, which used to be uh, Kraft, did an acquisition of Cadbury in, in India. Uh, they didn't find out uh, about ethics and compliance violations until about six to nine months into owning the asset. So, uh, you know, Baker and McKenzie is one of the, the largest global law firms, and they're really taking a look again at how you can use ethics and compliance again to get an advantage. And the advantage would be uh, doing M&A. And, 
you know, in one of my prior uh, incarnations, I was with a middle market investment bank here in Los Angeles called Focal Point Partners. And I, I think when you get the deal guys together, both the lawyers and the bankers, all they really want to do is get the transaction over the line and get paid. And there really has been a dearth of uh, due diligence from the ethics and compliance uh, side of the house. And hopefully this new paper by Baker and McKenzie will get people to think about that a little bit more. You know, Jay, the thing that uh, really jumped out at me was that basically 20% of all companies give compliance staff substantive roles in pre-acquisition uh components of uh, M&A. And that's just, frankly, unacceptable. If you think back to the 2012 FCPA guidance put out by the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission, they made it abundantly clear that they view your pre-acquisition work as at least as important as your post-acquisition work. And that they expect your, in fact, your post-acquisition work is informed by what you've done pre-acquisition. And if you have not done that work pre-acquisition, uh, you run the high risk of missing something. And as I tell people, the big problem is if you buy a company that was engaging in bribery and corruption, they continue to do so. It was not, it is not now them who is engaging in bribery and corruption. It is you. And that means that you're going to be liable under the FCPA. You have not bought an FCPA violation. You are violating the FCPA. And for at this point uh, in 2018, uh, 20% of companies um, utilizing compliance in the pre-acquisition um, phase of M&A is just uh, almost mind-boggling, but there's got to be more compliance component, and the Department of Justice cannot, and Securities and Exchange Commission could not have made it clear in 2012, and they're continuing to make it clear today. So, Jay, our next piece um, came out last week, uh, and but it's so pervasive and so incredible and so great, frankly. We're, we're closing in on the truth is stranger than fiction again. And it's an article in Bloomberg Business Week. It came out on the East, uh, available on their online site last week. And the magazine came out today about the fall of Travis Kalanick at Uber. And the subtitle is, and this encapsulates it all, Uber's horrible year was weirder and darker than you thought. Um, it's by uh, Eric Newcomer and Brad Stone, and basically what they detailed was the story of a um, corporate meltdown in the form of Travis Kalanick and watching him just deteriorate throughout the year with the thing that they brought, uh, new information they brought to the table though, Jay, was that senior leadership at the company had complained to the board. And this was not, you know, picking up the phone, calling somebody. This was not anonymous hotline tips. This was multiple senior leaders named signing, jointly signing a letter, several letters, several communications to the board of directors saying, please help us. Please help us. And the board basically doing nothing. And it's as damning on the board as it is on Kalanick, frankly. And the only thing that got the board off its duff was the um, blog post uh, detailing the sexual harassment that went on at uh, Goober by uh, the ex-employee Susan Fowler. So um, really interesting read, uh, lots in there. 
I think we're going to have to unpack it from the board perspective at some point. Uh, but uh, it's as weird as the KPMG uh, uh, saga. So uh, maybe we should, you know, rename this one the Weirdness Week. I don't know. But it was <laughs> it's uh, it's 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 literally watching someone have a you know a year long meltdown and and be able to almost take the company down with it. Okay, so we go from there to uh, taking uh, a look at another technology article. Uh, this is from um, Vince Walden and some of his colleagues at Ernst & Young, as well as um, a team at GE uh, led by Al Rosa. And basically, they've developed a new tool, which is called uh, Profit and Loss of One. And it's basically a way to prevent fraud uh, using enhanced compliance from digital twins. And what that is, is basically uh, coming up with, I guess, if you had an engine and you wanted to test what would happen to it, you could build a virtual twin of that and then expose it to different conditions and test your hypothesis. So what they are trying to do here is um, isolate tar target audiences deliver messaging that's tailored for individual roles and risk files, and assess the effectiveness of training and delivery communication. So a lot of times we've um, heard about situations where, um, not situations, we've heard about technology that if you're going into your company's travel system and you're taking a trip to Russia, that you can be messaged about your company's gift and entertainment policy. So um, what they've really done, and one of the things that you like to, you've been talking about for, I think, the last year or so is just about um, further taking AI and integrating it into your ethics and compliance program. And the article is really interesting, and it talks about using some technology uh, from ENY, which is an acronym they look at called AIR. And AIR stands for Automated, Intriguing, and Relevant. And the automation seeks to drive efficiency and provide transparency and facilitate compliance for repeatable processes. The intriguing communications incorporates gamification to get people involved. Sometimes you could have a, a leaderboard to see who's performing better or sometimes some type of game or puzzle to solve. And finally, the relevant, again, delivering that information in a way that is most useful to employees in the field and delivering it to them when they need it. So um, I think that does dovetail better uh, with the article that we talked about with Henry. What were your thoughts on this one, Tom? So, Jay, I thought a lot about this article. It is one of the most important articles I've read about technology, innovation, and compliance in some time. It, uh, frankly, is stunning in the way that uh, EY, Vince Walden and his team collaborated with the GE to come up with this profit and loss of one. They took uh, multiple data sources, including the GE training database, TI's corruption perception index, customer information, GE CRM data, uh, travel and employee, travel and entertainment employee data, and G's third-party due diligence database and ran it through and automated, excuse me, automated in, um, intriguing and relevant AIR communication systems and algorithm that EY developed 
to be able to give each individual employee the risk tailored to what they're doing. So imagine that, Jay, if, and let's just use you and I as examples, uh, I'm in Kazakhstan and you're in Nigeria, or I'm in Brazil and you're in Japan, or you're in Russia and uh, I'm in uh, Venezuela. Those are all different risks. I've articulated high risk areas for, uh, across the globe for each of us, but the risks are different in each one. And this profit and loss of one allows uh, an employee to get the most cutting edge information about uh, what the risks they are facing based upon the business situation they're in front of. And the digital twin allows testing of various uh, types of risks almost in a wind tunnel model. So the concept is, you know, it's pretty basic, but it's also evolutionary, if not revolutionary, in terms of delivering a coherent, consistent compliance solution to problems if they exist. And it's given to the employee who can then uh, either utilize GE's wide variety of uh, uh, internal risk management uh, techniques, strategies, and theories, or if they have to run it up the flag post and get help, they can raise their hand and ask for help. So I found it to just be a stunning, uh, stunning revelation and innovation and uh, to actually talked to Vince about it based simply upon the article. So uh, looking forward to uh, exploring this further. Uh, kudos, cannot give enough kudos to Vince Young and his team at EY and the GET for uh you know, taking a chance on something like this. But this really shows where compliance is going, how compliance delivers not only a business value, but frankly, this is going to make the GE employee more efficient and at the end of the day, more profitable. And that's what uh, the holy grail of, of compliance has been for some time. We're not going to have lawyers sitting there saying no anymore, writing policies and procedures and God forbid codes of conduct that say thou shalt not. Now we've got a compliance saying thou shalt and here's how thou shalt do it. So um, I think it's pretty exciting, Jay. Amen. <laughs> so, um, wow. Uh, well, we've got some time, Jay. Uh, and I said a lot about KPMG. There is two and a half tons of horse hockey to unpack in this. But uh, maybe I should start with what were your initial thoughts? Because you, um, you played in the corporate world. You played in the... Um, uh, uh, is mid-market capital world. You've been a salesman. You've been in the consumer world. You've been in lots of different worlds. Uh, and to have something like this happen, what what were you thinking? Well, it's like where is anybody's um, you know, reality filter? How could a senior manager and one of like a practice leader at a big big four company think? it would be a good idea to get all the answers that are going to be on the test. I mean, that just rings to the fact that this person does not have any ethics. Then to bring two or three other folks in, and then also to encourage dissemination of this information throughout the company. So it's bad enough that they're doing things on their own, but they're basically, you know, writing their own death sentence by spreading it out and finally hoping that it gets to somebody who has a shred of ethics and compliance. So, I mean, it, it just sounds like dumb and dumber. And uh, 
I, I, I was just shocked as I read Francine's article and the deeper and deeper it went. And it appears that there's still uh, what are there another unnamed five or six partners right. who are um, mentioned in a, a DOJ action. So those were my, my first thoughts. But, you know, uh, what, why would anybody think that's a good idea? I love that. Uh, why would anyone think it's a good idea to get the test answers? Uh, channeling your inner twins, I see. Uh, <laughs> Dad, Dad Jay. Well, Jay, in an FCPA case, the dreaded question is where else? In this case, I think the dreaded question is going to be who else? Because uh, sure, th- this went on for two years. This was not a one-off. And um, it, you're correct. The DOJ named uh, listed five unnamed partners in the uh, indictments. It's unclear their role, but you've got to know that others at KPMG knew about this. And what's going to be their responsibility, both civil and criminal? And then what's going to be the responsibility of KPMG uh, going forward on this? Uh, Francine McKenna raised the question, are the audits valid? Uh, do they? Do they companies have to go back and make restatements? If, if uh, KPMG is going to steal the answers for the test and then use those answers or go back and change old tests, why would anyone trust that they've done something else? Uh, why would you trust that they've uh, been honest with you? So... I think this is going to be a huge scandal. Uh, like I said, Francine McKenna was born to write this story, so uh, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what she comes up with. So, Jay, we've got a, a couple of other things that maybe we can uh, touch on briefly. Um, I'm in the last throes of 31 days to a more effective compliance program. As we record, I'm on day 25, so six more days to go. Check that out. Um, sponsored by Conversant this month. Uh, also, uh Jonathan, um, Marks and I are doing a next compliance master class on February 12 and 13 at Markham's offices in Miami. So if you'd like some information, we'd love to have you there. I know uh, you're getting ready to uh, participate, I believe, Jay, in a uh, local SCCE conference. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, we're having a, a one-day conference uh, down in Irvine, which is uh, in Orange County, and it's uh, Basically, uh, it starts off at about 8.25 in the morning and goes to 4.30. And the subject matter that we're going to cover, there, uh, as always, SCCE uh, plans these things in, event, in advance, but they always seem to be spot on. Uh, first topic would be uh, near and dear to our colleague, Jonathan Armstrong, the EU's General Data Protection Regulation, GDPR, and top-line global privacy is key. Uh, then we're going to next take a look at the state of DOJ and SEC guidance and compliance uh, implications. Then the next thing we're going to talk about is engaging your board, break for lunch, look at high-risk markets and FCPA, and uh, two colleagues will be leading that, Brian Michael from King & Spalding and uh, Tedra Foster, who is at Herbalife Nutrition. And then we'll go into the home stretch, look at immigration that keeps popping up again and again in the news. And finally, um, the last session will be on why marketing and communication drives more impact than training alone. So uh, I've done a few of these one day events and it's really nice um, to get together. Uh, you know, you, you'll see more of your local folks there and with LA being such a sprawl, you know, um, 
will probably I'll meet people that uh, you know I would not normally see because even though Irvine's maybe 40 or 50 miles away, you know, depending on the lovely traffic here in California, it can be um, a heck of a schlep. So uh, I'm going to go down there tonight. Looking forward to the uh, conference tomorrow, and then maybe uh, I can put some thoughts together to have for next week to uh, share on what was discussed. Also wanted to let people know if you happen to be listening in from Singapore, uh, my colleague um, Eric Feldman will be out there uh, teaching a class, uh, uh, anti-fraud class for the Association of Certified Fraud Examination, Examination Examiners, excuse me, and that will be on uh, January 29th and January 30th. So great. Well, Jay, we're going to hold off on in any more football discussions until uh, next episode. So you don't have to give your predictions um, as yet. Uh, but we will note for the record that the Eagles and the New England Patriots are meeting in Super Bowl 52 at Minneapolis next week. So on that note, Jay, you want to take us home? Sure. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor. We'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 86. There were off to Minneapolis edition. So thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast. We take our ratings very seriously and the comments that you leave. If you leave a particularly funny comment, we will read it on the air. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thank you again for listening to This Week in FCPA. I hope you'll join us next week where we review the week's comings and goings and tops FCPA and compliance-related stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.